due to arrive at seven o'clock on Monday morning. I had the day planned to catch up with him and my uh, his wife and three-year-old nephew and 15-year-old niece. Um, but their flight was cancelled on Sunday night from Dunedin and they were put on a flight arriving at 2.30. So that was all good till nine o'clock on Monday morning when the 2.30 flight was also cancelled. So they drove up. Um, <clears throat> I think they were trying to avoid that with a three-year-old. But anyway, we had a cool day together on Tuesday and actually Monday meant I got caught up on a whole lot of work, which meant I was in a much better headspace to enjoy their company. So that was Monday and Tuesday, and then we get to Wednesday. So Wednesday, I'm heading to Palmerston North on an 8, 10 a.m. flight to meet a colleague to do an audit. 10 past seven, text. I've just tested positive for COVID. Okay, ring my boss, ring him. I'll talk to you when I get to Palmerston North. We'll figure something out. Maybe you can do some stuff via the phone. Cool, get to Palmerston North, ring him. Sorry, um, my GP says I have to get in an ambulance and go to hospital because he's a man in a wheelchair, so he's quite vulnerable. So no phone calls or backup from him because he has other things to do, like survive COVID. Okay, so an audit that's 32 hours, 16 hours of me and 16 hours of him is now, Kim's got 16 hours to do that. Um, so we got through that miraculously at four o'clock on Thursday. I was finishing up thinking, have I forgotten anything or have we just worked very efficiently? So I did his work and my work and the service that I was auditing was very, very accommodating. So we got all that done. Off to the airport, Wellington Airport's closed. Not a good sign. Get to Palmerston North, no, my flight's still going. So I'm coming home, uh, Palmerston North, Auckland to get to Christchurch. Should land at 10 o'clock on Thursday night. Just before we're due to leave, delayed. 25 minutes. Means I'm landing in Auckland as I'm meant to be boarding in Auckland. That combination doesn't work. There are no beds in Palmerston North on Thursday night because there's a local government conference and they have every bed, apparently every um, uh, rental car. There is nowhere to stay. And so the young man at the airport does all this running around and he comes to me and says, I can get you on a 6.30 a.m. flight out of Palmerston North. Okay, or we fly you to Auckland and you see if you can get something out of there. And there's a bed in Bulls. <laughs> the only bed we can find is in Bulls. So I think, oh well, we'll just stay here. Going to Auckland, there should be more options, but no, we'll just stay here. That seemed the right option. So into a taxi with Abu from Bangladesh, out to Bulls, apparently it's 30 minutes, I discovered, um, to the edge of town, to the Lancewood Motor Lodge. Hmm. And the guy who opens the door has his gumboots on, his stubbies, and his leather, you know, vest. He's been cutting wood, he's got a big beard. Thinking, cool, just you and me in the house here tonight, because it's a house and he lives in part of it. Okay. So I go in and uh, there's another person there who I'd seen at the airport doing similar things to me. I said, look, I'm going to wander into town. Bulls, that's a kind of exaggeration to a degree. And he said, oh, the pub's quite good. The restaurant's called The Rat Hole. <laughs> really inspiring. I'm looking forward to this. So I just said to the other person, look, I'm going to wander in and get something to eat. Do you want to come? So it was a 10-minute walk to The Rat Hole where we had dinner and I discovered that he 
lives in Omaru, went to Waitaki Boys High School, which is where my dad went and all good people go, obviously. And um, he's a Christian and goes to church in Omaru. And so I just got back to the house and it's just him and I and the man with the beard and the gumboots. And I just thought, thank you, Jesus, that I'm, I feel a lot more comfortable in this house with this man who we've established a whole lot of, I've established a whole lot of, you know, interesting connections with. So in the taxi at quarter past five the next morning, back to Palmerston North Airport, my 6.30 a.m. flight goes, which as you all know this week is relatively miraculous. And as I land in Christchurch, which is full of people trying to be somewhere else, I see that the two flights from Auckland they were talking about me being on had been cancelled. So in the midst of COVID weather and life, I just was so grateful to God that he put me in balls with a man that I felt very comfortable with sleeping down the hallway from a man I didn't quite know so much about my confidence um, and brought me home safely. So in, in the midst of I'm sure lots of people have had that kind of week. Um, I was very grateful to land on eight o'clock on Friday morning and go and sleep in my own bed for a wee while. But I guess I just wanted to share for me the cool thing of this week was the sense of God's hand ordering my steps in the middle of chaos and disorder. So I don't know what your week's been like, but even when we don't see you as we sing, you're moving. Even when we don't hear you, Lord, you're working. And I had the most delightful, really, dinner at the Rat's Hole with a person I'd never met before and discovered all these connections and the sense of God leading and guiding us. So whatever your week's been like, God was there and God was leading and guiding, even when it didn't feel like it, even when it didn't look like it, even when you think, I really have had enough of this week now, thanks. <laughs> um, God was there. And that's such a, I don't know how people do life in tricky weeks when they don't know that God's there ordering their steps, even in the midst of the chaos and disorder. So I hope there's a sense of somewhere in your week where you can see the way that God has ordered your steps. So as I've said, Colin's away, and this morning we're going to listen to John Tucker, who's the head of Kerry College, and he's talking about God is doing a new thing. And last Saturday, the elders and the ministry team leaders who were well enough um, gathered to uh, look at our vision and mission and keep that process going that we've been trying to do for a year despite COVID, 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 that thing. And uh, it was just a cool time of meeting, connecting, talking about who we are and where we're going and a real sense of God's presence. So just to reassure you that here... John Tucker is talking about God is doing a new thing, but God is continuing to do things through us. As Angela talked about, over 100 years, God is continuing to do things through us here at Parklands Baptist Community Church. So we're going to listen to John Tucker, his sermon, and then we're going to get into groups of three or four and talk about what he's um, talked about. I've got some questions here. Or you might just want to gather with a group of people and, and, and have them pray for you or pray together. But once this is finished... We'll facilitate that, and then we'll have a song and benediction and go and have our morning tea together. So um, we're looking forward to what John Tucker has to share about God doing a new thing. Thanks. Kia ora. 
called John Tucker Tuka Ingoa. I'm the principal of Kerry Baptist College, and it's a real privilege to be opening the scriptures with you today. Uh, let me read to you from Isaiah chapter 43, and I'm starting at verse 14. This is what the Lord says Your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I will send to Babylon. And bring down as fugitives all the Babylonians and the ships in which they took pride. I am the Lord, your Holy One, Israel's Creator, your King. This is what the Lord says. He who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and horses, the army and reinforcements together, and they lay there never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. The wild animals honor me, the jackals and the owls, because I provide water in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland to give drink to my people, my chosen, the people I formed for myself, that they may proclaim my praise. A few weeks ago, I read a really interesting book called The Choice. It's written by Edith Eager, a Holocaust survivor. And at one point in the story, she, she writes this. She says, I knew a girl at Auschwitz who was very ill and wasting away. Every morning I expected to find her dead on her bunk. Um, and, and I feared that at every selection line she'd be sent towards death. But she surprised me. She managed to gather strength each morning to work another day. And she kept a lively spark in her eyes each time she faced Mengel's pointing finger in a selection line. But then at night, she would collapse onto her bunk, breathing in rasps. And I asked her how she was managing to go on. And she said, I, I heard we're going to be liberated by Christmas. She was keeping a meticulous calendar in her head, counting down the days and then the hours until our liberation, determined to be free. And Eager says, but then Christmas came and our liberators did not. And that girl, she died the next day. Eager says, I believe that her inner voice of hope kept her alive. But when she lost her hope, she wasn't able to keep living. Well, this passage in Isaiah 43 was written for the people of Israel at a time when they desperately needed hope. Their nation had been destroyed by the Babylonian armies. Their leaders had been dragged off into exile. Their God had been dismissed as irrelevant. And they're struggling. They're struggling with all the D words. <laughs> they're disoriented. They're discouraged. They're disillusioned. They're despairing, they're doubting. They're doubting that God can renew them. They're doubting that God wants to renew them. 
they need a word of hope. And in this passage, that's what God gives them, a word of hope, or two words of hope, as it turns out. I don't know if you noticed, but this passage actually contains two separate poems, each one starting with the phrase, this is what the Lord says. The first poem centers on a promise in verse 14, where God says, for your sake, I will send to Babylon and bring down as fugitives all the Babylonians in the ships in which they took pride. Now, this is clearly a reference to the fall of Babylon at the hands of Cyrus, the Persian king, who God will send as his servant to conquer Babylon and free his people. And the picture that we're given here is of the Babylonian ships, which had once brought great wealth and pride into the city, suddenly laden with refugees escaping from the city as Cyrus invades from the north. But like a picture can be transformed by the frame surrounding it, this picture here, this promise, is transformed by what surrounds it. I mean, did you notice the cluster of names on both sides of this promise? I mean, look at, look at the names before the promise. Names used to describe the one who will do the sending. In verse 14, we read that he is the Lord, Yahweh, the God who bound himself by covenant to the people of Israel. And he's Israel's redeemer, the God who takes as his own all the needs of his people. And he's the Holy One of Israel. He's the God who is holy, the God who is faithful to his covenant people, even when they are not faithful. And then in verse 15, we see that he is Israel's creator. He's the God who created or birthed Israel as a nation when he rescued them from slavery in Egypt. And he is your king. In the ancient Near East, uh, the king was in one sense the father of his people. So do you see the theme running right across all these names? Every one of these names or titles speaks of God's passionate, personal commitment to his people, to his family. Well, as a child, I had a front row view of this kind of faithfulness. My two older brothers were both adopted at birth. And it would be fair to say that they struggled with a sense of being abandoned or or, or, or displaced, or, or maybe even exiled from their family, their family of origin at least. And I, rem I remember late one night when I was just a little boy, my, my brother arguing with dad at the top of his voice and then shouting when the, when the argument reached its crescendo, I hate you, before slamming the front door, the big heavy front door of our house and storming off into the night. And I'll never forget hearing my dad and my mum sobbing quietly in the room next door. I'll never forget watching my mum and my dad searching for their son, yearning for their son. And when he came home, killing the fattened calf and rejoicing over their son. And then on Sunday, singing the hymn, O love that will not let me go. 
The God we worship is a God who reveals himself in this text as the faithful one. And so he says in verse 14, it's for your sake. He says to his people, it's for your sake that I will send Cyrus to crush Babylon. Isn't that incredible when you think about it? The Persian army will rise. The Babylonian empire will fall. World history will turn because of God's passionate commitment to his exiled people. Large-scale geopolitical shifts are going to take place because of God's unfailing love for his covenant people. The Lord is going to rearrange global forces. He's going to change the history of empires in order to rescue and renew his people. William Temple, the remarkable Anglican church leader, he once said this. He once said, The supreme wonder of the history of the Christian church is that always in those moments when it seemed most dead, out of its body would spring new life. I teach church history at Kerry, and, and Temple's right. Think about the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, or the Radical Reformation in the 17th century, or the Evangelical Revival of the 18th century, or the Second Great Awakening in the 19th century, or the Charismatic Renewal of the 20th century. In those moments, when the church seems most dead, God causes new life to spring up. He's faithful to his covenant people, even when they're unfaithful. In recent years in New Zealand, church engagement on Sundays has declined, right? And the cultural values which we have held dearly as the church, that those, those values have been dismissed. Public attitudes towards Christianity, towards the church, have deteriorated markedly. Economic forces have begun to endanger the viability of many faith communities. Sometimes, if I'm honest, it can feel like we're in exile. Sometimes God can seem far away. But the word of hope for us in this first poem is that God is passionately committed to his people. He will not abandon his church. I was talking to a couple, um, I was talking to a, a, a Māori student at Kerry just a few weeks ago. He said to me, do you know how many Māori are coming to faith in Jesus at the moment right across Aotearoa, New Zealand? I said, no. He said, it's staggering. So many Māori coming to faith in Jesus. God has not abandoned his church. I was chatting a while back with Alan Jamison. He's the director of the New Zealand Baptist Missionary Society. Do you know how many Christians today in Tripura, that's a northeastern state of India, do you know how many Christians up there trace their whakapapa to New Zealand Baptist missionaries? 115,000. And guess how many of that 115,000 have come to faith and been baptized in just the last two to three years? Guess how many? 15,000. God has not abandoned his church. Which brings us to the second part of this passage, the second poem. If the first poem assures us of God's passion for his people, the second poem assures us of God's power on behalf of his people. 
In verse 16, we read, This is what the Lord says. He who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and the horses, the army and the reinforcements together, and they lay there, never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. This is clearly a reference to the Exodus, right? When God demonstrated more spectacularly than perhaps anywhere else in the Old Testament, his remarkable sovereignty over both people and place. It's a wonderful description of the Exodus, but look at the verbs that are used here. Most translations place them in the past tense. So it's, it's this is what the Lord says, he who made a way through the sea, past tense, who drew out the chariots and horses, past tense. But these verbs, they're actually present participles. A better translation would be, this is what the Lord says, he who makes a way through the sea, who draws out the chariots and horses, present tense. This is in the present tense. And the point is that what God has done is not all that God can do or will do. The spectacular acts of God in the past do not merely belong to the past because God is faithful to his people and because he is sovereign over people and place, he is forever leading his people into new life. And that's why in verse 18, he suddenly pivots, apologies, that is a much overused word at the moment, and he says, forget the former things. Don't dwell on the past. See, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. It's, it's springing up. Don't you perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. It's happening right now. So do you see what he's promising his people here? In this promise, he is, he is giving them or promising them another exodus, a new exodus. He's saying to them, in effect, just as I once made a way for you through the sea, I am now making a way for you across the sand. Just as I once turned the mighty waters into dry land, I am now turning the dry land into streams of living water. Yes, I guess at one level, this is a guarantee that he will guide and sustain his people on their long journey from exile in Babylon back to their homeland, across the, the burning deserts. But it's more than that. In verse 20, God says, The wild animals honor me, the jackals and the owls, because I provide water in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. This is an image of cosmic transformation in which all of creation, the jackals, the owls, all of creation rejoices. God's promising that, that he will renovate, he will renew his entire creation, all people, all places. And with Jesus, we know this side of the cross, it's begun. The one who calls himself the way, the one who offers living water to those who are thirsty, he says, come, follow me, join me in the new things that I'm doing. So how might we do that? Well, some time ago, 
one of our lecturers at Kerry uh, was offering through our Centre for Lifelong Learning a course on local mission, George Wheeland, wonderful missiologist. And uh, with this group, he had the participants read some literature on local mission. Then he got them to, to walk through their neighbourhoods, engaging in some very simple practices. He said, as you walk the streets, ask God to help you see what he sees and to delight in what he delights in and to grieve over what he grieves over. And then pray for the blessings of God's kingdom for your neighborhood. And, and look for signs of that kingdom. And then afterwards, he said, I want you to write a short reflection about what you've seen, what you've heard, what you noticed, what you want to know more about, what you prayed for and what you felt prompted by God to act on. And then finally, George met with each of the participants one-on-one -on -one to discuss their experience and to help them, help them develop a tentative strategy for bringing gospel renewal to their neighborhood in light of what they'd seen and, and, uh, and experienced. Well, one of the participants walked around the streets surrounding the church building where he and the people of his church worshiped. Um, as a result of doing that, he ended up at one point on the campus of the local university where he found himself gazing at a community with hundreds of international students, students desperate to connect with Kiwi families, students wide open to conversations about faith. God had brought them from the nations to, to this guy's doorstep. And it dawned on him that this was where he and his church family needed to be. God was doing something new right under their nose. Well, if, if you're like me, the last two years have probably felt at times a little bit like a wilderness. Extended lockdowns, vaccine mandates, constant uncertainty, financial pressure, regular pivoting. I mean, all of this, it's taken its toll. And maybe like Israel in ex exile, you're feeling a little disoriented, a little disillusioned, a little discouraged, a little displaced. Well, hear the word of God through the prophet Isaiah. He says through these words, I am passionately committed to you, my people. And I am present with all my power to bring new life both to you and to the neighborhoods in which I have placed you as my witnesses. See, I am doing a new thing. Amen. Wow. Our God is always doing a new thing, isn't he? So it would be really great if we could just get into groups of four or five and pray about something that struck you about what God's doing in our world, in your world, in our community, the new things that God is doing. And so we'll just take 10 minutes to pray together and then Angela and the team will come up and we'll finish with a final worship song and a benediction. So just... Get together and pray about what God's doing.